Hello and welcome to my weekly podcast interview of In the House Seats with me, your host, Craig Bartley. This is where every Sunday we talk about all stuff regarding theatre, film, television and the ups and downs while training for the performing arts industry. Who knows, some things could even relate to your experiences as a theatre wannabe or participant. Or if you are a parent or guardian of a future performer, it may help you to understand about training and the entertainment industry from a different perspective and someone else's point of view. I will be speaking to professional performers, choreographers, adjudicators and industry leaders to find out more about them and their transitions and journeys from learning their crafts to the professionals that they are today. So for the next 30 minutes, all you need to do is sit back, relax, enjoy and listen with us. Today in the house seats, we have Ben Costello. Hello, Ben. Hello, Craig. Hello, everyone. It's great to have you with me today, and I'm excited to delve into your career and get the lowdown of your views about the performing arts industry, training, and your life in general. Now, your career has seen you as a musician, vocational teacher, musical director, and soon-to-be examiner. So tell us how it all started, where are you from, and what was life like in general growing up? Fun childhood in a way. Grew up in central London, in Earl's Court, Kennish Town, a few other places. We travelled around a bit because of my stepfather's work. Then ended up in Sussex for two or three years, sort of lost the London accent a bit, and then back to southwest London where I still am. And I was interested in quite a lot of things as a kid, but music not really until I got to about... 10, 11 years old, started playing the flute and then discovered the piano. And then it kind of went from there, really. It became a great passion and went to uni, did piano and singing and then conducting after that and fell into musical theatre and so on, kind of along the way, really. Were any of your parents into musical theatre or anything of performance? No, I didn't meet my dad until much, much later, about four years ago. And he's quite musical into the guitar and stuff. So it might have come a bit from there. But actually, my mum and stepfather, they were kind of supportive of it. But I think they were hoping I might get a proper job, you know. And I was into science and medicine. I was thinking about being a doctor too. So they were a little bit sort of wary, I suppose, like a lot of parents are when they've got a kid that wants to go into performing arts, if you like. And then as work kind of came in, they were kind of, they were perfectly happy with it then. How did you get into the profession initially and where did you train as a youngster? As I said, I mean, the first sort of intensive music training was, you know, private lessons at Lewis on the East Sussex Prep course, as it was called which was a, a double A-level in music. So you had theory was one A-level and practical music was the other. And then you did another A-level in something else on top of that. So was, that doesn't run anymore. So it was quite special. It was, and it was great fun too. And then at uni, of course, you sort of get opportunities around that as well. And I started working outside of university, getting into trouble because my studies were sort of affected by it. When I wasn't doing pub work, I was sort of accompanying singing lessons, conducting the odd you know, amateur singing group. And, and bits and bobs. So where did you go on to do your vocational training in music? Well, I was at Kingston first, which was great because it was a really eclectic course then. And it was a conscious choice to go there. I had a really good time there and I got a lot of opportunity to perform. 
as a conductor, as a singer, and, and, and as an accompanist. And I was loving accompanying by that stage. I never wanted to be a solo player. I like collaborative playing. And then the conducting sort of started to take off. I did a postgrad at LCM in conducting after that and then joined the faculty at uh, LCM for seven years following that, working specifically in musical theatre. Just for the listeners' purposes, LCM is the London College of Music. That's right, yeah. And it was that's quite an eclectic place as well, really. I mean, it was a very big conservatoire in central London years ago, and it's kind of diversified over the years. Now, obviously, because of your ability to play and teach musical theatre pieces, you had to learn all varied styles across the board. Do you feel that this is compulsory for learners currently training as musicians? Yeah, the more versatility you have is only going to help you. And in fact, now there's a lot more training that exists to help with that, particularly for musical directors. I mean, you can do postgrads in musical directing now. When I was a student, we had to predominantly focus on classical rep. You had to get musical theatre experience off your own bat, really. But I think the more versatility a singer or a pianist or anyone has in this industry is going to really help them. From when you trained and even in your first professional jobs, do you think that when musicians play, their techniques and styles have altered much to fit today's social current trends? Yeah, they have. I mean, because you're integrating a lot more styles and genres of music into what you do a lot of the time, particularly with a lot of more contemporary musical theatre. One of the big changes is that the bands are a lot smaller in your typical show and your MDs are having to lead from the keyboard. 30 years ago or so, there was far more MDs were on what we call on the stick. They were able to conduct the shows and didn't have to play. So that's a skill that is much more contemporary than it would have been then. So MDs need to be able to direct as well as play at the same time. little bit about being a founder member of the Kingston Chamber Singers. You know, a lot of conductors do this. They form their own vocal group. And that's what I did not long out of uni because I wanted to do some interesting material. And it's basically made up of freelance singers, you know, professional or semi-pro. And we've used to do quite a lot of corporate gigs and commission the odd piece, but we don't do much now. We sort of get together for one-off performances with very little rehearsal time. Whoever sings, and it's got to be really good reader and able to blend and just be quite versatile as a singer. It's good fun. I wish I had more time to do it. You were also artistic director of Thames Concerts that have seen big recording artists such as the infamous jazz singer Claire Teal, Cantable, and many, many more. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what entails for you as an artistic director and how they can see any productions? Well, it's a really good series, Thames Concerts. It's been running for almost 60 years. So I'm, I think, about the fifth artistic director. And it's a privilege to do it. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of time spent on it. And me and the rest of the committee, we're volunteer trustees, so we're not paid for it. But I have great fun fixing it every year, booking the artists. Sometimes I put myself in the series as well, like this year, to accompany and yeah, it's, it runs every year from October to February. We have a mixture of evening gigs, mornings, and you can find it all on the website, thamesconcerts.com. And we're running as normal this year. 
in spite of the COVID situation, we've got a lot of safeguards in place. People can still come and hear the gigs. So if by going to the website, to Thames Concerts, people can actually purchase tickets that way, can they? There's a link on all the gigs to take you to TicketWeb and you get a discount if you buy your tickets in advance, which at the moment is a good idea, particularly because we've got a limit on numbers. So if you turn up on the door, there's a chance you might not get in because we've run out of audience space. And absolutely. And it's good for a Christmas present if anybody needs something a little bit different to go and see a performance. That's for sure. Yeah, and get a season ticket, which is a nice discount for the whole lot. So that's, that would be a nice prezi for somebody. Yeah. Absolutely. This is so great that I have you here today in the house seats as I had no idea that you had achieved so much in your career. But let's leave the entertainment industry for a moment and find out about your loves and passions, such as your prized pianos that you have. Yeah, they sort of take up the whole flat, you know. I've got this old Steinway Grand. You know, everyone pianist always wants a grand piano, and I was very lucky to get this really cheaply from a flat that was sold at auction. And it's nice. It's an old war horse, you know. But the one I practice on most is a Yamaha upright piano. And, and I always wanted to have two. That sounds really greedy, I suppose it is, because my first piano teacher used to teach off two pianos. And I got so used to having that kind of training and her improvising along with me when I had lessons and things. And I, was, I developed a real love for two piano music, music for piano duo. And so I love doing music in that combination. It's, it's great fun. And then, yeah, the, the unusual instrument is, is the harpsichord, which I've got. I've always loved playing continuo, which is playing in ensembles. And, and I managed to get that from a great friend of mine. And, and that's a lovely instrument. I believe that the guy that made it, he's still alive, and he made two duplicate ones. And one is in America, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. He, he's, he's in his 80s now, John, and he used to build like one or two instruments a year. And when he built mine in 1975, he built a sister instrument with it, you know, so they're, they're like little twins. And it's in America somewhere. And I always imagine that one day we might kind of get together on Zoom or something and do a concert with the two instruments playing together. Anything's possible. But I don't actually know where it is at the moment. I'd have to find out. Oh, you have to hunt it down. So if there's any listeners that know a relative that's living in the States with a harpsichord, then get in touch with Ben, that's for sure. In 2016, you worked on pieces with the Thames Philharmonic Choir. Tell us a little bit about them and their repertoire. I've had a long association with that group. They're one of the big choral societies in London. And and in fact, actually, all through my career, I've worked with choral societies and choirs. And it was quite a challenge at the beginning because, you know, a lot of my colleagues used to say, you know, you should nail your colours to the mast. You're either going to work in MT or you're going to work in classical work. And I wanted to do both, you know, and it sometimes was a problem. But that choir I had a long relationship with as a visiting sort of soloist and occasionally depping for the conductor. And then I started working with them regularly in 2016. And we did some great gigs, some concerts, some music by Puccini and Haydn. And then I think the highlight for me was in 2018, we did a big performance of Britain's War Requiem in Cadogan Hall, which is a really colossal, moving piece of anyone has come across, they'll know what I mean, with all this war poetry. And we had two orchestras, soloists, choir, boys' choir, um, two conductors needed on it as well. So I was one of the conductors on it. And that was a real highlight, actually. And it was the anniversary weekend, you know, the wartime 2018 anniversary. So we got 
a really premier venue right in the in the in, in the heart of London, heart of London for that, which was great. Well, it sounds like such an honour, that's for sure. Mm. Let's just go back for a moment before your professional career started. Did you ever compete in music festivals or competitions? Yeah, I did. And I was involved in about two or three festivals, most of which was when I was down in Sussex when I was a teenager. So Worthing Festival I did and, and, and East Grinstead. The funny thing is, years later, I've gone back and adjudicated at those festivals, which is really lovely to do that. And they knew I was a performer in them myself. It was simply something that you just did. You know, my, my teachers would just simply say, right, you're going to be in that class, that class, that class. And I just just got on with it. And I liked it a lot, too, because you got out of school. Uh, so you'd sort of hope that the festival classes would be in the middle of a lesson that you weren't very good at. Uh, so you would be sort of taken out and you'd go and do your class and you know, I, I'd won some of them and I didn't win others. And, and it was all good fun, though. And I got some good feedback. And I just remember good experiences from those festivals for the three yeah. or four years that I did them. Yeah, I did festivals, too. And I had a great experience, um, usually because I won. Anyway. <laughs> but, for those it's, that, nice, it's a nice feeling. It's a nice feeling. <laughs> it is, absolutely. For those that enter festivals, do you feel that competitions give a good, solid grounding and progress musicians for a future in the performing arts industry? I think they do. I, I like the fact that the festival tradition is trying to move away from the sort of sportive competitive element to talking to the participants as performers. You get a lot of mums and dads that can be a bit overambitious on their kids' behalf. But I think it's a really good avenue to develop really good performing skills entering festivals. And it's a pity when you've, you meet some performers who've never had that chance to do that because their teacher never told them about it or because it practically wasn't possible. But I really would encourage any performers of any of the main performing arts disciplines to, to do festivals. It, it really is a really good complementary thing to their train, aspects of their training. Yeah, I think it's very good for competition standard. Because when you eventually go into vocational auditions for colleges, or if you go into the industry and have to go to an audition live, then it gives you that etiquette and also that professionalism to have one step ahead for the expectancy of what's required. And also that competitive value to actually gain the job or contract. I think you're right. I think it's, as I say, there's a lot of transferable skills that come out of it. And also, it's, it's another way to find out where you are in your development as a performer, which is a different, different to an exam. And people always say, oh, festivals are like exams. Well, they're not. Very different situation. And the adjudicators are looking for different things to examiners. But I think it's, a, it's another great string to a performer's bow to have been through that sort of scenario, if you like. Yes, definitely. Now, you currently live in leafy Surbiton and currently have your flat on the market. Now, moving home is definitely a stressful time for anybody. So what's the next step? Where do you see yourself going? I don't know what's going to happen yet. I mean, it's, it's a move that's kind of out of necessity for just the amount of sort of junk that I've accumulated. You know, <laughs> pianos have got to go somewhere. And I think this cold COVID thing has made me think about this, the whole thing about working from home. 
But as somebody else said, you know, you, you have to actually also think you're living at work. And I think that's something that I've really need to sort of address that I don't ever kind of switch off from it. So the plan is to try and sell and then I'll probably move back home for a few months, <laughs> back to mums and just sort of take stock of things and see how this re- sort of picks itself up next year. Because I think like a lot of musicians and performers, none of us are really certain how, how things are going to turn out at the moment. If you know anyone who wants to buy a nice two-bedroom masonette in Leafy Surbiton, then <laughs> And Ben will probably throw a couple of tickets in for the Thames concerts as well. So tell us about being a workshop leader, as you seem to have taken on this role many times, even for HF holidays. Yeah, I love doing these kind of days. And obviously with HF, it's, it's more like residential weekend things. But it's great. You can go and work with a group of singers, a choir, a chorus, whatever, and just have a fun day with them, you know, introducing them to a musical area that they may not do. So I've done workshops on jazz, on musical theatre, on acting through song and opera choruses and things. And those aren't areas that, say, choral societies would necessarily be doing a great deal. So it's a lovely chance for them to have something different in their calendar and it's nice to go in cold to an ensemble that you don't know and just grab it and run with it for a day. HF is the oldest uh, provider of leisure holidays I think in the UK. They've been doing activity holidays for over a hundred and something years and I became a leader for them about uh, two or three years ago I think and people go on these things they do, do all the singing in the morning then they go off and maybe explore some ruins of an abbey in the afternoon kind of thing. It's a lovely balance. Bit of exercise, bit of singing, bit of beautiful countryside. What more could you want? Absolutely, yeah. I think I'll book him myself, actually. Going back to competitions and festivals, can you describe for the listeners what your expectancies and job role is as a professional music adjudicator? Well, you want everyone to come along and be confident about what they're going to do so they can stand up and enjoy the experience. And then as an adjudicator, you want to give them something constructive, that's useful, that's honest, but ultimately that makes them want to improve and makes them want to go away and think, you know what? Yeah. And I want to come back next year and perform again. And that's if I've managed to get that out of a performer, then that's wonderful. You try and get it right all of the time. And actually, the festivals themselves do a great job on the whole of really providing a lovely, friendly, warm environment. worked in many vocational colleges such as arts educational lane theatre arts and even my very own starquest performers college what is your expectancy of students nowadays to get on in the industry well it's challenging at best and obviously this year's really kind of highlighted how difficult it is for the performing arts to survive anyway but i think the colleges do a great job on the whole in in preparing performers for that supply outweighs demand hugely. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been very pleased and very fortunate to have worked in, in these major colleges like StarQuest and so on, and Art Center and Mountain View and that for, for many years. 
they all bring something unique and to the table and there's wonderful faculties as well. But uh, I think ultimately students need to have a real drive and a real passion and a good work ethic to, to get on. And I remind my students a lot that, you know, when you go for auditions and stuff, you know, the, the casting director isn't looking at the character. They're looking at what you're going to be like as a person uh, to work with in a company. Anyway, I'm, I'm very lucky that I've had a chance to be involved in that and still am involved in, in teaching. Do you feel that some colleges actually are too big? And do you feel that sometimes students expect rather than work for? Then answer the first point. Yes, I think some of them can be very big and sort of quite overawing. And I like it when I get to work in a place where you actually can put a name to every student. And that isn't always the case. And that's a pity when that happens. I think smaller class sizes and more focused one-to-one support is obviously very, very good. Uh, on the whole. And it's a case of colleges balancing that financially, obviously, with what they're trying to sell as a, as a package. Students sometimes need to be encouraged to really buy into the process of training. Um, and I, I love it when you get a student that is, has got an opinion about something, which is, is, is not that common sometimes. And it's great when you get that and you can work with that and build with that, particularly what I'm doing, which often will be doing acting through song and talking about character and context and so on, which can be great fun. Now, as a musical director, adjudicator and soon-to-be examiner, can you tell any prospective listeners that are musicians out there that you think that joining an examining board or a membership organisation would be an asset for them? I think it is. And I think because often that's where the profession is benchmarked in terms of the qualifications you need to be in those organizations, the training that you get, the auditions, the interviews that you go through to get into those organizations as well. It's not the be all and end all, of course, because professional experience and it's just as important to go along with that. Most importantly, though, there has to be standardizations and benchmarks in the, in the business, and they're important for that too. So, so, Ben, tell us, what have you been up to in lockdown? Have you learned any new hobbies or crafts? Or, you know, I know you like biking because you've got the most fantastic motorbike. So tell us about that. <laughs> well, I love bike, motorbiking because, you know, you can just escape. And I, like, I use it for work, but I use it just for fun. But actually, I've started cycling in the lockdown, had my bicycle serviced, and I've been trying to do that because otherwise you're just sort of vegetating around, you know. And as most of my friends keep telling me, you need to do a bit more exercise. So that's what I'm doing. Apart from that, I've sort of, you know, I've got to admit, I think like a lot of people probably, I was a bit sort of shell-shocked when the whole lockdown kicked in. I really didn't think it was going to happen. And, you know, you're just watching all this work trickle away. And, you know, things are slowly getting back to normal. But I, I think the cycling and just getting out and, and, and friends and so on, it's just been really important, I suppose, just keeping me sane through the whole thing. your bike and traveling are you still fond of traveling because as I believe when you had flown to a job once you ended up on the national news tell us about this 
that was funny. I mean, I, I used to hate flying. And, and as I started doing more overseas work about 10 years ago, I started doing more and more and you kind of get used to it. But no, last year I was adjudicating the, the uh, Gibraltar Festival and we were all on this flight going out there and the turbulence around the rock was so bad. They aborted the landing at the last minute. I've never been so scared in my life. And the plane was swerving up and down and all the rest of it. And we ended up going to Malaga. And before we'd even touched down at Malaga, the incident had been put on Sky News. And apparently it was on BBC News. And we didn't even know. But so many people were filming the plane as it came in. But it's pretty horrible even looking at it when you look at the footage of it uh, now. Yeah. But, you know, you just get on with it. But I needed quite a few gin and tonics later on that evening. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to lie. Bless you. Yeah, I can imagine. Actually, if you want to see that footage, folks, it is actually on a, I believe it's a BA flight, isn't it? It was a BA flight, yeah. BA yeah. flight, and you can actually see it on YouTube. So that, <laughs> if you're not a, really weird looking at yeah. it, it's, it's like, crikey, I was on that flight. <laughs> yeah, it is a very scary moment, that's for sure, just, just to watching footage. Now, if you were to go back into a West End show as a musical director, which current show would you like to be part of? Well, you know what, assuming any of the production companies want to scrape the barrel this low, I mean, I'd love to go back and do... There's a couple of shows that really are musically just really interesting and, and, and moving. Evan Hansen is definitely one. I love playing through that score. And actually, I love playing through Hamilton as well. There's so much interest and musical quality in, in the writing. But also, I'm, I'm a, an old-fashioned romantic. I mean, put me into a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. That's where the bar was set. I mean, there's some great writing. As I enjoy too many. But at the moment, in terms of what is in town at the moment, yeah, those are two that I would be particularly, particularly keen on. And actually, Light in the Piazza, when it was on, what a fantastic show that is. I adore Adam Gertle. I would have loved to have been playing on that. Maybe it will come, come back in someday. Who knows? So you like the more contemporary works at the present? I like them all, really. I think most MDs, when you say, they, people say, what's your favourite show? And a lot will say Gypsy because it's just brilliant. But I don't know, I was always into, I mean, I, I, was, I love the great American songbook. And, and I think a lot of the shows I like sort of, uh, I, I discovered the, the shows through those songs. And, and composers like Frank Lesser with, with really big shows like Most Happy Fella, which is almost an opera. Pieces like that really, really get me very excited. I think they're great. It's just great writing, great classy writing. Classy writing, that's what we like. Well, whatever you end up doing in the future, I am sure that you'll be working for many years to come, that's for sure. It has been an absolute well, pleasure with you today for both me and my listeners to learn more about your fantastic career. Thank you so <laughs> much, Ben. Been a pleasure, Craig. Excellent. Well, unfortunately, that's it for this week. However, don't forget to tune in every Sunday for my next guest in the house seats. Chat soon. This broadcast can be heard on my website at www.craigbartley.com or tune in on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher Worldwide and Google Podcasts by looking up In the House Seats with Craig Bartley.